Hello, you are listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. My name is Jonas Cornelson. Welcome to episode two of So What. Thanks for joining me. I'm finding top stories from CMU's public events and sharing my take on them. These are conversations you won't hear anywhere else, and I'll guide you through my personal highlights in about 20 minutes. I'm glad you're here. CMU is located on Treaty 1 land in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I am speaking to you from my home in Treaty 7, Calgary, Alberta. I love reading this stuff. Like a right-wing blowhard modeling depolarization. Today I'm looking back at an event from CMU's face-to-face series called Us and Them. How did we become so polarized? This took place about a year ago in February 2020. Four panelists shared ideas and stories on why the gaps between people who disagree are so wide and what we might do about it. We'll hear from two of them today, and the full event is available on CMU's YouTube channel if you want to hear more. First up is Sandy Coop Harder. Sandy is a professional mediator with Facilitated Solutions in Winnipeg. She also serves as vice chair on the CMU Board of Governors. Sandy has lots of experience working with people in conflict, and she shared some interesting ideas on the difference between agreement and understanding. We'll pick it up right there. So much of conflict is not actually about what we agree on or don't agree on. Sometimes we so desperately seek agreement that we lose sight of a much more important element, understanding. When we work at building understanding as the primary goal in these conversations, we have the potential to transform both the conversation and the relationship, regardless of whether we agree or not. Here's the thing. Much of what happens in human interaction exists inside our own heads and hearts. It's private, it's unheard and unseen by my communication partner. The only thing that you can really know is my action, the thing that I say, the thing that I do. You can't see my personal private motivations, my intentions, my values, the reasons for saying the thing that I said and and doing the thing that I did. The way my words land with you and the impact that they're having on you is also equally private. It's happening inside your head and inside your heart. I can't know this unless we talk about it. And the dangerous reality is that so often, instead of talking about it, we tend to interpret these privately held intentions based on the privately experienced effect that the action has on us. Because if what you said felt hurtful or disrespectful, I naturally assume that it was your intention to hurt and disrespect me. You see how this can get us into trouble. If I believe that you intentionally hurt me, my next action is necessarily born out of that belief, and I just might do something to hurt you in response. This happens all the time in communication, and it happens in a millisecond. The the key here is to stop that cycle, the downward spiral into defend and attack. We need to slow the conversation down, and we need to find courage to share our concerns and perspectives clearly and non-anxiously and then give the other person room to respond. And we need to make understanding not necessarily agreement the goal. When this happens, resolution is often the byproduct. All right, we're off to a good start. I'd like to point out that Sandy is talking about person-to-person, 
typically in-person conversations. As a mediator, that's her wheelhouse. Although not impossible, it's harder to apply these practices to online interaction. As political science researcher Chris Tenuv writes in The Globe and Mail, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter are designed to, quote, ring the bell of intense emotions. They encourage users to react and share instantly. Slowing the conversation down, as Sandy suggests, is a great practice. But social media companies make more ad money with every click, so we're encouraged to respond fast and often furious. We also lose nonverbal cues like body language when we communicate online. Sandy talked about motivations and values being hidden, which is true in all communication, but we miss even more through the screen. But what about understanding rather than agreement? I think there's an idea that might help us online, either to change our approach to conversations or to decide what the best venue for a conversation is. Let's hear more from Sandy now on the difference between conflict and combat. Max Lucado, an American author and pastor, perhaps said it best. Conflict is inevitable. Combat is a choice. We all have a role to play in bridging differences, big and small, whether that be how we engage as a conversation partner or how we witness as a third-party observer. How we show up in these moments, it matters a lot. And it starts with choosing to shift away from that either-or, us-and-them thinking, away from our assumptions and judgments, and to a posture of curiosity. It starts with making understanding the goal, even and especially when we disagree. What I take away from Sandy's comments is that reducing polarization, no matter the content of conversations, is about our posture, as she put it, how we show up. And these ideas are put into practice by our next panelist. Will Braun has experimented with this kind of showing up in his work as an editor and journalist. You'll hear him tell a couple stories about what this looks like. But first, he frames these experiments in light of growing up on a farm in southern Manitoba, among neighbors who often thought very differently than him and his family. I grew up on a farm near Winkler, and there, deep in the Mennonite Bible Belt, I observed my parents think for themselves. They were open-minded, questioning, and well-read. I recall as a teenager, Occasionally, my dad would read a book by James Dobson or some other American right-wing Christian. At the time, this offended me. I knew my dad didn't agree, so I would ask him, why do you read this stuff? And he would say something like, oh, you got to know what people are thinking. And it really bugged me. I wanted to just dismiss these people, and my dad was moving toward them, extending his boundless curiosity to them. Over time, my own curiosity grew. From 2005 to 2009, I worked as co-editor of G's magazine. I soon realized that editors receive letters to the editor, not always complimentary. What to do? At one point, a popular Christian talk radio host in California blasted us pretty hard on his show. So we decided to give him a page in our magazine. No editing, no tricks. Todd Friel, Way of the Master Radio. Kirk Cameron was his colleague. If you haven't heard of Todd Friel or Kirk Cameron, they are prominent Christian media figures in the United States, 
known to frequent the right wing of the political spectrum. And if you haven't heard of G's Magazine, it's an independent publication that critiques mainstream culture, Christianity, and capitalism. I'm amazed to know that Todd Friel even read it. And just wait till you hear about the article that he sent to G's. Here's Will describing it. Top 10 reasons G's gets up my nose. I knew when I saw that title that we were, this was going to go well. <laughs> this guy was playing ball, right? Number 10, $7 per issue. I could buy three gallons of gas for my SUV for $7. <laughs> Jumping down to number seven. While I confess to having a short attention span, what? Are you guys on crack? Your design baffles me. I confess the first four, he says, are subjective. Therefore, I repent of the first four. The following two aspects of your magazine bother me because you may be right. And I hate it when people I hardly disagree with are correct. And then he concedes that evangelicals are too political and should care about the environment more. Then he goes on to talk about the gospel. I love reading this stuff. Like a right-wing blowhard modeling depolarization and like being a sport about it. Uh, so maybe depolarization can even be fun. Gotta say, Will's enthusiasm is infectious here. I've never heard anyone say blowhard in a way that almost sounded like a compliment. So using criticism as a chance for conversation may not have led to agreement, but perhaps some level of understanding. Here's Will with another story about working with disagreement from his current job. Now I have a different occupation that also forces me to practice depolarization, that of a journalist. So I'm on the staff for Canadian Mennonite Magazine, which serves the uh, Mennonite Church Canada denomination. Our denomination has lost a number of more conservative congregations around LGBTQ matters, as many of you know. So when the Berkteller Church in Winkler left the, the conference, I went to interview their pastor. That's my job. Accurately reflect a wide range of views. So I, wrote, I write both opinion pieces and journalistic ones, so this pastor would have known my views, which he would have considered much too liberal. So I went to sit down with him, I told him, you know that I disagree with you, but I want to understand where you're coming from. I think it's important for our readers to hear where you're coming from. At one point in my life, I wouldn't have had any time for this guy. So why? Why interview him? Even though I think he's wrong. I know of no other way to reduce polarization. That's sort of how I see polarization. Two groups of people yelling at each other with a gap in between. So me trying to out-yell him wouldn't work, wouldn't help. Me demanding that he listen to me probably wouldn't work very, work very well either. Excluding his voice, uh, in the name of inclusion of course, would just make things worse too. I mean, polarization is a stalemate. Each side is so convinced that the other is wrong and you're just waiting for the other side to, to listen to you. And the temperature just keeps going up, right? The only way that I can think of to turn down the volume is just to be quiet, put your bullhorn down, go to the brink, jump over, and listen. I just don't know of anything else that would work. Then the temperature goes down. People feel heard. They shake hands, maybe not in agreement, but out of respect, they soften, hopefully, on both sides. Wouldn't necessarily always work. No miracles, probably, but just tiny bits of softening. So when I sat down with that guy, I became a tiny bit less self-righteous, uh, which is important for me. So for me, this part needs just a bit of nuance. 
because there's a difference between self-righteousness and self-respect. The conversation here is about the experience of LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people in Mennonite churches. For those who are LGBTQ, this is not a difference of opinion. It's a question of being acknowledged and respected for who you are. I think it's important to hear multiple perspectives, including those we disagree with. But refusing to listen to someone based on self-righteousness is different from insisting on dignity and respect and creating personal boundaries accordingly. A little more on that later. But I do like what Will said about tiny bits of softening. If we set out to change someone's mind, we'll probably end up disappointed in them and maybe disappointed in ourselves. Having modest expectations might help us approach these conversations more gently. As Sandy said, aiming for understanding, especially when we disagree. I have never regretted that discipline of saying, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not letting go of what I believe or anything. I'm just going to put that on pause for now and I'm going to try hard to understand where this person is coming from. On some level, it makes no sense to move toward your opponent, to give them space in your magazine. And at that point, I'm held by John O'Donoghue, the late Irish poet and mystic, who writes about contradiction as not being a bad thing. Contradiction, I would argue, he says, is a very precious arrival in any life. We have demonized contradiction. And if we believe it has to be rooted out or flattened out, we will do violence to ourselves. And we're all right and we're all wrong and we're all good and we're all bad. Uh, and it's nice to, it's freeing in some ways, it's difficult and freeing to recognize that. These thoughts on contradiction are a good reminder that we're all complex. No one has it perfectly figured out. I don't want to live in a world where everyone thinks the same way, but I do want to live in a world where difference is met with respect and curiosity instead of suspicion and fear. And a good way to think about this is being neighbors. Will found this when he went back to where he started. Seven years ago, I moved back to the Bible Belt with my family to raise kids there, 13 miles from where I grew up. My kids sometimes want to dismiss people just the way I did when I was a kid. Maybe the neighbors who farm very differently than us and drive by way too fast in their gas-guzzling 4 by 4s And then, sort of echoing my dad, I'll say something like, you know, guys, someday we're going to be stuck in a snowbank, and that guy's going to come with his big 4 by 4 and he's going to pull us out, and we're going to be really grateful. Because in the end, we are all neighbors. I think saying we're all neighbors might be a good way to imagine everyone we come into contact with, in person or online. You don't have to be close friends with your neighbors. You don't even have to like your neighbors. But being able to get along with each other generally makes everyone's lives a bit easier. Now this takes a certain amount of effort from everybody, and you don't have to endlessly try to get along with someone who doesn't try to get along with you though I do spend lots of time with my nieces, and the situation looks a bit different with young kids, especially siblings. Anyway, this threshold looks different for everybody, and Sandy and Will both spoke to this at the question and answer portion of the event. I think it's important to, again, it sounds like we're a bit like a broken record up here, but you know, really trying to make sure that before you make, before you make that decision to kind of walk away from a relationship that, that you that you are fully 
and have fully engaged in really working at trying to understand their perspective, right? Um, so that you can then use that information to help you make that decision about whether or not you can kind of have this person in your life. I, I don't think there's any kind of one answer or one, you know, a right or wrong in that context. I think it's really tough. I think it's super hard, especially when you're dealing with kind of like identity issues, the issues of justice. Um, those are, are tough ones for sure. I had a chance to interact with Cree people up north who, who experienced very, you know, extreme injustice. So I think this question really, it, it's bang on. It, it, it's very important. And I guess there, I think there comes a point when you just say what you have to say, period. And yeah, where you're, you're not trying to depolarize or you are just saying what you feel is your truth and you say it as strong as you can. But even then, I think you, you would say that in the hope that the bad guys, that there's some possibility of them changing their mind, right? Because that's, that's what you want. I don't know. Everyone needs to set boundaries, especially in conversations that personally affect them. For example, several weeks ago, I noticed a post on social media from a friend who had come out as bisexual in spring 2020. He is also a CMU graduate and cares deeply about theology and faith. In this post, he drew a clear boundary. If you question my salvation based on my sexuality, I'm going to block you. Simple enough. I asked if he'd be willing to say more about this, and here's part of what he said in a private message. It's a matter of consent. I don't mind discussing salvation and homosexuality in the church, but it has to be a discussion taken up in good faith. These conversations are almost always uneven. For them, it's a philosophical argument, while for us, it is deeply personal. It took me literal decades to come to a place where I could accept this part of me, and I'm not going to give a random person on the internet who isn't arguing in good faith, space to hurt me. Those are powerful words. I'm particularly struck by the idea of good faith. Coming back to understanding, as Sandy mentioned earlier, it's a lot easier to talk to someone you disagree with when you can tell they are sincerely trying to understand, not just get a point across for their own sake. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground here, and we're coming to the end of the episode. Thanks for sticking with me. We've talked about depolarization, and we've talked about the importance of boundaries, knowing when to say enough is enough, and the challenges of social media platforms that make us respond fast and furious. Now, something I was a bit surprised not to hear much about in the face-to-face -face event was the idea of truth. Might also say misinformation. In December 2020, polls showed that 27% of U.S. voters still thought Donald Trump won the presidential election. Then on January 6th, these alternative facts led to real violence in Washington, D.C., as Trump incited a mob that stormed the U.S. Capitol. It's dangerous to play with truth. And I'm left wondering, are the strategies we talked about today enough to bridge the gap when people don't only hold different opinions, but claim different facts? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this or anything else from this episode. Leave a comment on our Facebook page at So What Podcast. That's facebook.com slash So What Podcast. Thanks again for listening. We're back next month with a look at treaty relationships in Canada. 
If you're wondering why I mentioned treaties in the introduction, this one's for you. I'm Jonas Cornelson. Let's talk again soon.